Hi, I'm Troy McClure. You might remember me from such podcasts as Dear Ellen Lovejoy and The Most Is Lack Experience. I'm here today to welcome you to the Americans Watching the Footy 138th episode spectacular, featuring semi-final post-mortems and prelim previews. Benjamin, Ethan, take it away. Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Ryan! This is Buddy Franklin! This is the greatest showman! Got the handle off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Randall Dazzle Rioli. With our thanks to Mr. McClure, yes, we are here for the 138th episode spectacular. I thought it was going to be a spooktacular. I went to Spirit Halloween for nothing. Well, it's September, not October. They are starting to pop up. Does Australia have a thing like that? I don't think so. I would love if, like, a bunch of Australians knew about the concept of Spirit Halloween, but, like, just knew it for memes. I bet they do. You know what? It says World's Level 1 Halloween Costume Store. I wonder. Looks mostly American. I mean, there are a lot of things in the U.S. that are number one in the world. I mean, yeah. Like NBA champions. You guys saw, like, that whole thing. Yeah, like, everyone saw. I mean, I, I get the whole point of the argument, but look, if you're the NBA champions, you're probably the best club team in the world. There ain't no probably about it. Like, why haven't we seen any Geelong 2022 World Champion shirts? There should be. I mean, look, there's, with all respect to the USAFL, y'all ain't coming close. We should have like a, you know, a footy super classico. USAFL versus AFL? Or like, I don't know, some other AFL league. I mean, it would be a bloodbath, but you know what? Fuck it. The Austin Crows would beat the West Coast Eagles. They definitely, uh, I can tell you, whoever, like any USAFLW club could beat the AFLW Eagles. They're really bad. And yet, for some reason, I think the women's team could beat the men's on some days. No. No, they could not. The waffle team, then. The women's could beat the waffle. I don't know. if this, As long as this isn't like soccer, where women's teams lose to 15U men's teams. Actual thing. Yeah, the women's Eagles are 0-3 with a percentage of 34. Does the whole city need to throw a parade for their first win of the year or something? I don't know, but that women's Western Derby, which ended... 27 to 19 sounds like a real doozy. Anyway, we're not here to talk about that, are we? No, not really. We're here to make fun of the teams that lost in straight sets. I find it hard to make fun of the demons. I was kind of pulling for them going into this whole final series thinking, okay, the Giants could stand a chance in one game, but I wanted things to happen for this Melbourne squad. They still have a window of a couple years, but straight sets for the second year in a row, which hasn't happened since the late 80s. Again, I talked about this during our prior episode. Some shit happened to them that cost them these games between injuries and suspensions and just some really bad luck. But it's against the backdrop of last year where they were just plain beaten. Like, if each of those things had happened independent of each other instead of in consecutive years, I I wouldn't be ripping on them this much. And I'd feel really bad because it happened against two teams I really wanted them to beat. I think that's the other reason we might be a little hesitant to jump on them. But here's the thing. It was the same stuff as last year that ended up screwing them the end. Here's the thing. I'm less hesitant to pile on a team when they fail to win games I want them to win. You know, it's great to make fun of a team when they lose after you wanted them to lose. But I think it's also important to make fun of a team when they lose when you were pulling for them. It's like we, you know, it's it's a you had one job situation. Their one job was to end the lose run. And to beat Collingwood a week before that. You just had to win one of those, honestly. One finals win, and the perspective would be a lot less harsh. But the forward third remained the problem for the Demons all year. And it doesn't make sense with the list. I mean, I guess it does make sense, because it was clearly a weak point on the list, but it shouldn't have been this obvious. They were able to 
keep the ship afloat with Bailey Fridge out for that stretch between Alice Springs and the home and away finale. But three big outs factored into things in finals. Harrison Petty, foot injury round 21. Jake Melksham, ACL round 24. And then Jacob Van Royen getting suspended for, I think it was the hit on Dan McStay. Yeah, I believe that was the one. Yeah, all out when it mattered. And a significantly downgraded forward line just kept getting stuff bombed in their general direction. Which wasn't the MO for them most of the season anyway, so it was weird that they would revert to it now. And especially to do it against those two teams. I mean, you're facing a team that has more Murphy and Quainer, and then you've got Wiedering and Newman on yeah, yeah. just like probably two of the four or five worst teams to try that against. Like along with the Giants, I'd say bad idea to do it against Geelong. Honestly, it would be a bad idea to do it against the D's, but the D's can't really do that against themselves. Maybe the Lions? I don't know. Actually, probably not as bad against the Lions. Anyway, it's just, it was a stupid game plan. It was poor execution. So and, and they, they deserve to lose. So how much of this do you pin on Simon Goodwin and the coaching staff? And how much could this get scrutinized with Adam Uze potentially being a finalist for the Richmond job? I don't think like his performance over two games is going to scare Richmond away. Just the fact that they reverted to that, though, at that time seems very strange with what had been working for them the whole season. I, I really need to see them moving more like the Giants. They've got the contest depth. They've got the speed on the outside. You've got maybe the best wing duo in the competition with Ed Langdon and Lockie Hunter. I mean, Carlton could be up there with uh, Blake Akers, and if he stays there, Sam Doherty, or maybe Ollie Holland's maturing into that second wear. I just want to mention, by the way, you let Toby Benford go and somehow end up with the best wing duo. Like, that's a situation that really worked out for everyone. As good as Benford's been, he wasn't a great fit at Melbourne stylistically. You know, moving meant more playing time for him. And then the D's are able to work something out by kind of dumpster diving, finding Lockie Hunter, and they end up really good on the wing within their style without compromising that. I, I hardly call it a dumpster dive. It's just needed a change of scenery given the stuff that was going on for him personally and damn good of a lifeline. Maybe he wasn't expected to be the top winger there with Ed Lightning being there, but I'd say Hunter had a more prominent role this year. And good for him. And good on the whole Melbourne midfield for stomaching the absence of Clayton Oliver. Again, their contest depth is no issue. I had doubted that Jack Vida would be able to make up for Oliver the way he did. I expected more of it to fall on Angus Brayshaw, but he still ended up being that sort of tertiary guy there. I'd like to see him keep more of that midfield job, though, especially when you've got some young backs like Judd McVie and Jake Bowie developing, because I also want to see Christian Petraka have free reign in the four two-thirds, kind of late 2010s Dusty-like. If you have Oliver for a full season, I would say just let Petraka be Petraka. As we all expected, missing Angus Brayshaw for one game was far more devastating than missing Clayton Oliver for, like, two months. And it was a surprisingly long-term injury as well. Just, I know there was a setback there, a blister issue as well, but the injury reporting there was as bad as Geelong's. And it sounds like they are going to crack down on that and make teams give like actual weak timelines now. Yeah, I'm fine with that, by the way. Like, do it, do it like the NFL, you know, regulate it, standardize it. What I would do... And find teams for giving inaccurate reports. Yeah, what I would do, you know, for like players within the week of the game, you can categorize them as, you know, probable, questionable, doubtful, and out. And yeah, then you just give a timetable in terms of, you know, it doesn't have to be exact. It can be like four to six weeks, one to two weeks, whatever. But rather than just, seriously, I just... Yeah, instead of test, just, yeah, do questionable, doubtful, probable. I mean, we kind of try to do that in our own preview reporting. And that's just kind of following the American lead for most sports, I'd say. Forgot to mention also among those backs, uh, Trent Rivers as well. Surprising omission from the 22-under-22 team. This is a team that is transitioning pretty well in terms of age in a lot of different spots. If Michael Hibbard is retiring. Yeah, missed out on 200 games by a couple. Could have gotten there and they made the grand final. Luke Dunstan also retiring. Had kept up well in the VFL. Was named the team of the year at the VFL at age 28. And then also, Brody Grundy likely being traded to the Sydney Swans. Port was in the race for them for a while. Sounds like they're going to go for... Jordan Sweet instead, who'd been languishing in the VFL behind Tim English at the Dogs. Would Sweet be the number one guy then, or are they kind of looking to phase out Lysette? Ooh, 
You know what? That would make sense. I think you're also probably going to see some more opportunities for Dante Vicentini and Sam Hayes. More on those guys later. Yeah, you want to have like the established, you know, a more established option there to go with the younger, less fruit ones. Another one who's likely going to be out of the picture for Melbourne is James Jordan. And Ethan, he was your sleeper for this year. Yeah, he's probably going to, he's going to land somewhere. I don't think that's too much of a concern. Played in 18 games, six as the sub, twice he was replaced as the sub. He's turning 23 in December. Can you go somewhere where he'd be a more prominent midfield piece? And yet the Bulldogs are interested. If I was him, I'd be looking elsewhere. If I were him, I would be looking for a place like the Saints. Or maybe Geelong. Uh, doesn't look like Geelong are interested in him. The Saints and Dogs are among those who have reported interest, along with the Blues and Swans and Bombers. The opportunity is there for him to have a steady place in the lineup. It's tough to crack that midfield. There's a reason Toby Bedford moved on as well. My sleeper, by the way, was one of those young backs in Jake Bowie, who still isn't as prominent a player as he was during that 17-game winning streak to match his jumper number at the start of his career, but a bit cleaner with the ball, fewer turnovers. Still want to see him bulk up, if that's possible for him. He's 5'9 and under 160 pounds. Like Even 10 more pounds of muscle would be so huge for him. Make him more formidable one-on-one, because Christian Salem isn't going to be there forever. You can tell how important he was to their structure when he came in starting around 10, missed the start of the year with his recurrent thyroid issue. Who knows how much longer he can play with, with that in mind. So you're going to see Bowie, Rivers, McVie have some more prominent spots in the years to come. Really liked McVie for most of the year. Played every game, a bit too aggressive at times. You could see that burn then in that final goal sequence in the semifinal, but didn't think he'd be as strong one-on-one as he already is. And... I imagine right now they're looking at him as being the main guy to really take Hibbert's place of defense, yeah? Yeah, I think it's pretty obvious that he's going to be a long-term piece for them. Thoughts on Shane McAdam wanting in? And the Adelaide Crows not even naming him in like their tweets about just saying, the forward has wished for a trade. You know, he's a sort of spark plug guy in a forward group that outside of Kazi can get pretty stagnant. So I think he'd probably help. The more pressing need, though, I mean... How pressing of a need are their talls? With Harrison Petty and Jacob Van Royen coming back, I think it's less of an issue. Yeah, just Petty's had that foot injury multiple times, so that's a bit of a watch there. I want to see a full year of him and Van Royen in the forward line before making real judgment. And I just hope that McAdam coming in doesn't squeeze out Cade Chandler. I think that's highly unlikely with how well he played. I mean, I expect Chandler to play round one of next year with Kazi suspended. But Chandler's just a guy that I would say you could play opposite picket, could be involved with some more of their run and carry into the forward half. And I've been begging to see him more involved in both of the finals. Instead of bombing it into the 50, work through those smalls, whether they're going inside or outside. Use that spread again like the Giants do. I don't know if there's like a real catchy name for it there. Like, a, I don't know, I'm trying to come with some good alliteration, but just the opportunity for that strategy is there. I want Simon Goodwin to take a look at his forward group, then take a look at what Adam Kingsley has done and learn from it. He does that, and we see that their first month or so next year, I'll tip him for the flag. Because I feel like they've got to get one more in this era, right? I would say that, but at this point, it's going to be one of those, like, first they got to win a final again. Once you've gone out in straight sets in consecutive years, it takes a lot to shake that. I mean, we even say it about the Brisbane Lions, and it was straight sets in two of three years for them. One last thing. Where do you see Petraka finishing on Brownlow night, which is uh, less than a week away? God, that's tough. I think top four. I mean, that seems like a safe bet. I don't know. I I just really believe Bont should be the one to win it. I think it's going to be Nick Dacos, then Bont and Pelly, then Petraka, then Neil. I think Dacos will still have done enough, even without playing those last couple games. I don't know. Let me check the uh, Brownlow predictor on the AFL site. Has Neil at 32, Dacos at 30, Butters 29, Bot 28, Toronto 27, as Petraka tied with Dawson at 25. But yeah, Neil's got a stretch over eight games where he gets at least two votes seven times in the middle of the season that could be enough to win it. Also, he gets six votes across the final two rounds. That could push him onto the podium. I still, I, I still think it should be both. I do think so, and he did win the Lee Matthews Award which is very proper. I wouldn't be mad with Neil winning a second, though. I feel like an underrated possibility out of all this is Neil just pulling a Dusty and winning 
the Brownlow, the Norm Smith, and the Flag all in the same year. That would, again, require the Lions to win a game at the G. And yet, for some reason, I can see it happening, and I almost want it to happen at this point. Oh, I wouldn't mind. Like, I want the Lions to be proven as... I want to be right. I want the Lions to be proven as a flag team. And I want Neil to rightfully take his place among, like, the all-time midfield elite, potentially. Which you could do with a second Brownlow and a Norm Smith. But now it's time to talk about the team that Neil and the Lions beat in that second qualifying final. How quickly we forget about Port's 13-game winning streak. Yeah, um, this was a team that, after starting 1-2, and two, won 13 in a row, then lost 4 in a row, and then won 3 and lost 2. Like Pretty much all their losses came either against finalists or Adelaide. Yeah, this is going to be a tough one for the power of their fans to swallow, considering not only did they go out in straight sets, but they also got doubled up by the Crows. Like, I feel like when you've got a rivalry that kind of consumes everything as a fan, and it's the best rivalry in the league, you've got to either perform well in that rivalry or have a ridiculously amazing season. you got to have one or the other. And as good as they were during that 13-game win streak, they didn't win a final, and the drought under Hinckley continues, and you go, you know, it's going to prompt some uncomfortable questions. He was extended for two more years, but uh, he also extended his own record. He has now coached 248 games at Port without making a grand final. That is a record that he has extended. He's got a lead there on Brad Scott. And I would say, generally speaking, he's worked with much better rosters than Brad Scott. So the power finished third at 17-6, and 112.8%. Not a great percentage. They turned around their performance in close games. They had the save on the goal line against Sydney with former Swan O'Leary O'Leary saving the day. They had Dan Houston's after the siren winner at the G in the rain against Essendon. Houston, deserving All-Australian. The best player moving the ball out of the back third probably all year. And just a ridiculously long kick and an effective long kick. Nine goals for him, I believe, is a career high. But the actual one-on-one and marking defense outside of O'Leary O'Leary and an emerging Miles Bergman, 22-under-22 representative, was shaky at best all year. Yeah, I I think of Bergman more as a ball mover, especially along the boundary. Well, he did well against some small forwards one-on-one this year. Toby Green was quieter against him once Ryan Burton was moved off that matchup. Burton is a guy that swung back and forth throughout the year, and you can kind of tell he was playing without a real home. But Tom Jonas injured and just left out, which the club handled really well. Yeah, that's the sort of thing that could have kind of shredded him from the inside and didn't seem to cause any chemistry issues. No, Jonas held himself accountable, and now he's out of the picture. He's retired. Trent McKenzie was injured and dropped at times as well. Riley Bonner, more of a carry out of the back as well, and one that we weren't really fans of. He's been delisted. What's a Bonner? So their defense is really yet to take shape. Darcy Byrne-Jones was moved out of defense. I think that actually worked out really well because his pressure in the forward half was really strong. You had pressure from the center square through Zach Butters and Jason Horn Francis and Ollie Wines when he had time there. But going into the 450, Byrne-Jones provided a really good piece of that there and was much more consistent in providing that than Willie Rioli, who could turn it on at times, but was just kind of up and down throughout the year. I mean, poor man's Kazi Pickett isn't the worst thing you could be. And he's a premiership player like Kazi. I was just begging to see more Frank Evans as a small forward. And his lack of selection in a lot of games, including finals, really puzzled us. It seemed Hankley and company were insisted on keeping Jed McEntee. And when, yeah, he was a decent tackler, but when Port was struggling to find goals, Evans could easily have been that spark. He had three and four goal outings late in the year. And I know you're as much of a believer in him as any, Ethan. There's a reason he was your sleeper. Yeah, he never lost until this year and still has a really good record. It was a 12-game win streak to start his career. What is he? 14 and 14 three? and 3, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think, like, the name Frank the Tank is actually kind of deserved because he kind of can be a physical bruiser, even as a small, which I love. You have him and Willie Rioli in there, and one of the two of them should get at least one big hole in the ball call to set up a shot. Yeah, I like the idea of muscular small forward. I also like the idea of tall small forward. Hey, you heard about this Japanese guy? Uh... Is his name something like Kensa Carter? Yeah, something like that. Seems like he could be going to Queensland. Does he know Taro Sujimoto? For the Tokyo Katanas, he better. 
Okay, you guys probably don't know about Taro Sujimoto. Great story. He, everyone in Australia should love him. Everyone everywhere should. Look him up. Trust us on this one. The people of Buffalo will thank you. Is Evans your favorite player at Port? If the answer is no, I know who it is. I, I don't know. It's a tough one because they've got a few players that do different stuff that I like. I thought that you would just immediately say Sam Powell Pepper. He's up there. He's he's really entertaining. That's another of like the physical smaller forwards. Maybe the most devastating player going through stoppages in the league and can score some really early and also really crafty goals. Was it the one against Geelong on the boundary that got him nominated? That Thursday nighter? I think so. That one was great. He he did that a bunch of times, like plays like that. It was a down year kicking-wise for Todd Marshall, playing through a hip injury, but remains a really strong contested mark. It's the tall forwards where I guess the structure wasn't as set. Jeremy Finlayson led their goal-kicking count, but with just 38, and you would pinch him the ruck a lot. Charlie Dixon was out. Ali Ward went off for four in the qualifying final in the loss. I just don't think a lot of this team's structure in either 50 is really established, which is really strange for a group that ended up in the top four. I think in the back 50 more so, whereas in the forward 50, I think they've got guys, and it's just a matter of figuring out how to kind of parcel out the lineup decisions and things like that. Back 50, I think there are far fewer like candidates you feel really good about entering next season. Seems like, though, they're more content on having an actual ruck next year, because, as we said earlier, Jordan Sweet wants in, and it sounds like Port will oblige. So he'll be in there, probably ha- splitting some time with Scott Lysette, who only managed, I think, 14 games this year and was subbed off four times. And Sam Hayes, my sleeper pick, was subbed off two more times. So they often did kind of last year in the later part of the season. Well, really much of last year. I think Lysette went down, what, round four last year in that awful game against the D's? Yeah. Um, they didn't do it for full games, which was probably smarter. Like, unless you're really out of options, you probably should have one, but you need, you need something decent there. And you have enough pinch hitters there, like Finlayson, and Dixon, and Lord's done it a few times. Heck, we even saw Sam Powell Pepper take a few forward 51s. So they've got the guys to go ruckless. I just don't think it's a viable thing long-term for them. And they're definitely eyeing some better defenders as well, Asava Radagolea and Brandon Zerk Thatcher among them. The question is, how much of their future will they have to bargain for that? They only have two draft picks this year, number 37 and 47, so have fun their list management. And it seems like they want to give Radagalea a lot of money if they get him. What was it, $5 million over seven? Something like that. Either way, it was enough to the point of, if that's what you offer him, go ahead. Have fun. As much as I like him and as much as I'd like to keep him around, if... Have fun losing showdowns. And have fun probably getting clowned by Riley Silthorpe. Or is Lockie Jones just going to keep being the guy for that? I don't know. I like Lockie Jones. He's another of my favorite players on this team, even though he did have one of the funnier bad moments of their season. Again, it was that round three showdown. After he went off for, I believe, three goals round one. But yeah, round three, I think it was Silthorpe's fourth goal that he was the reason it happened and Silthorpe made him know about it. It was funny. I hope we see that in the round three recap on Bradley Knight, just that little interstitial they have as they kind of get the votes ready to present for that. I think they have the most uncertain future out of any of the top four teams, any of the ones that actually got the double chance this year. We could see where the future's trending for the lines of the Ds in potentially positive and negative ways. Collingwood, you expect them to stay where they are near the top. Port Adelaide, who the fuck knows? Yeah, this team could look radically different not long from now, with the exception of we know that there's going to be, you know, the Butters, Rosie, Horn, Francis core. But outside of that, yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty moving ahead. And those three will be reaching their peak really together in the next few years. That's the most exciting part. Butters w- won the Coach's Votes Award, the Champion Player of the Year. He could be among the top few on Brownlow Knight. Rosie's speed and long kicking were really important. And Horn Francis has that inside half forward, ready to dive for the ball. That complemented the other two really well. And then Ali Wads was moved out to the wing for a bit and then later in the year went back inside and that ended up working out. So between those four, I'm looking forward to the future in the midfield. Having said that, though, it was that same midfield that got absolutely obliterated by the Giants in the semifinal. And maybe it's because just Tom Green was too strong at the contest and they could have moved Willem Drew's tag to elsewhere. Drew's moving into a top level tagger. Yeah, I like him, but I... I'm not even going to sweat that as much as the other structural issues they had. I think of this as 
you know, they were very strong in that area and it was a bad time to have a bad game. The The question is, how do you supplement this group? Because you know when their peak is going to be. How can you make sure that you're prepared to be a real contender and win flags during that window? And is Ken Hinckley capable of coaching a team that can take advantage of those best years? One other big piece of news for a team that didn't make the finals. We obviously couldn't include it and so you didn't crack the eight because this just fucking happened. Adrian Dodoro is on his way out of Essendon after a quarter century and there was much rejoicing at Windy Hill, or I guess the hangar. And there was much rejoicing. It's Matt Rosa from Peel Thunder and the Waffle who's coming into that sort of list management role. I don't think it's the exact same title, but Dodoro's on his way out after the trade period in the draft. It was time. Craig Falzo is clearly putting his own stamp on this club, saying there's a reason we haven't won a final since 2004. Wait, why is one of the same guys here from all along? And I'm looking forward to them actually having everything in order for this next trade period. You have the succession worked out. You clearly stabilized as a club in terms of front office going into next year. I want good things for Essendon. I want every team to be competitive. Why can't every game just end in a tie? Football. Watch it every day on TV. I'm not doing this. I already made a fucking thumbnail from that bit. Here's the thing, though. Do you want a succession plan and have any sort of, like, graceful transition when you've been like this for a while instead of, like, cutting ties completely? That's the one thing that gives me a little pause. Just thinking, I don't think it would be taken that well, even with the declining returns from Dodoro just to kick him out so quickly. I think I this, that. I think this is as gracefully as this could be done. And I hope Rosa will be consulted throughout the process to kind of get his authority into things early on. Now, they're definitely going to be looking for a key defender. And it sounds like they're one of the final two in on Ben McKay along with Hawthorne. I think we're going to that's going to be one of the storylines entering the 2024 season is will he live up to whatever big ass salary he gets? The answer is no. I don't know. He might. There's a world where it's possible. The answer is no. I mean, physically, he's capable. Unless he gets concussed again. It's it's just a matter of it's a matter of two things. Can he stay healthy? And will being on a better team motivate him to up his game to the potential that a lot of people see in him? I think Hawthorne would be the better fit for him in terms of actually being closer to winning a flag. And Essendon would be the better fit in terms of I am the guy here in defense and you cannot question that. Just Hawthorne is missing that one key guy. They've got everything else in there already. I would think that would be more attractive to Mackay. Seeing what's ahead of him in terms of the four two-thirds taking shape, having Sicily and Hardwick back there as smaller defenders. If you're looking in a place to actually get out of just the perennial disappointment of North, Hawthorne is your better bet, I'd say. Now watch him end up at Essendon and watch them not win a final for another decade. Don't forget, we are on Twitter at Americans Footy. I am on Twitter at Castle Media. I am at BenjaminHK01. Brian Harambe, the footy cat, is a cat named Brian on Instagram. He's been very athletic tonight. He's just kind of running all over the place. Uh, we've got some loose ends to tie up real quick before we continue. First off, a couple of delistings. We already mentioned some of the port delistings. As for the Crows, they delisted four guys as well. Andrew McPherson... Jackson Haitley, Tyler Brown, and Tariq Newchurch. Now, did three of them get AFL minutes this year? I forget if McPherson did. I don't think so. But I saw something interesting about these delistings. So McPherson played... No, he got one game last year and that was it. May have been an emergency. So McPherson and Haitley each played 28 games with an 8-20 and record. Tyler Brown also played 28 games. He's 14-13 with one draw. Then again, most of those games were Collingwood, whereas yeah, it's played. He's just 0-1 with the Crows. And then Newchurch, I don't know if he ever even got a game. Which is unfortunate because his headshot was staring into your soul. Yeah, when I think of Tariq Newchurch, honestly, that's all I'm going to think of is his weird headshot where he's just like staring into your soul. And he's Tyson Stengel's cousin, right? I think so. I remember there was something about him having a cat's scarf at uh, the Geelongport Adelaide game. Was that round 19 last year then? Must have been. Also, uh, the Squitters, the GWS fan podcast, pointed this out. In weeks one and two of finals, the winning teams kicked 78-56. The losing teams kicked 56-78. In other words, back kicking is bad footy. 
134 scoring shots each way, which is pretty impressive that the numbers worked out like that. And it's just the exact reverse. Well, I don't know if it's necessarily bad footy, but definitely losing footy. Also, I have a late realization as to who the actual main character of the semifinals was. I'm listening. Mel Bedford, Toby's mom. Uh, she gave a drunk interview and it was hysterical. She called them the green team at one point. Kelly Underwood's been outdone? Yes. So are we making this official Mel Bedford? Main character? Easily. I guess more than straight sets. Yeah, it was a very GWS-centered weekend between their win, Mel, the snake catcher, everything there. You know what, fuck it, now's a good time to mention this. Just before we uh, came back to record this second half, Adam Uze is going to be the next head coach of Richmond. So if people didn't know how to pronounce his name before, they will now. Yeah, it seems like enough legitimate sources are confirming this that we can feel pretty good about including it. Caroline Wilson's one thing. John Ralph is another. I'll trust whatever Ralphies say. So perhaps we'll see something different then in terms of movement. We saw Andrew McQualter really showed his hand in terms of, for example, putting Noah Balta up forward. Not sure if Uze will stick with that. Also considering that they may get Jacob Kaziski coming into the mix. Also Tom Lynch coming back. Insert the 24 clock for Jacob Bauer continuing his emergence at the top level. Richmond will be under a lot of scrutiny this offseason. I know that. Again, going back to the post-mortem, I find it really bizarre that Uze and the Melbourne attack just reverted to bombing it during the finals, and I don't know what to make of that. I hope that whoever comes in to replace him in that role at Melbourne is more a fan of spreading the ball like the Giants are, and I've, I've said that all along, and I truly believe it. Melbourne has a list to play kind of the Giants' way, tsunami-like. Anything else we need to tie up, or is it on to previewing the games? I mean, while we're going through the rest of this news... 315 games is enough for Todd Goldstein at North. I know what you're thinking as a Cats fan. Yeah, if he wouldn't mind, you know, just kind of being second or third on the chain of command position, would be pretty nice to have him. I think he would need to go somewhere with a promise of steady playing time. That's the thing. Because he'd been down to the VFL, he'd been demoted really for the first time in, I forget what his streak was, but it was a long amount of time that it had taken for him to actually be taken out of the side. So I feel like, Geelong actually aren't a good fit because of that, because going into next year, I would say Conway, Blitzoff, Staley are your three, and I don't think it's a good idea to mess with that. Ironically, Melbourne would actually kind of make sense. He'd be the number two guy there. Oh god, not this again. They have a chance to do something really, really funny here. I think it would also be more sensible in terms of, like, where could he go where... You know, Melbourne would have their number two guy, but there also wouldn't be too much calling for him to play every week. I think it would make sense, you know, if, if he'd be okay with maybe not getting in more than like five games unless Gons hurt. And again, that's the rub. I think he wants to go somewhere where he gets the steady time. Port? Well, Port's already going to be going for Jordan Sweet, sounds like. He's nominated. It's a very strange spot, and I wonder if it's going to end up going well at all for Goldie in this whole carousel. Well, we'll have time to talk about all these moves when they become official and when requests become clearer as the offseason develops, but uh, it ain't the offseason yet. We got three games to go on the men's side until that. So let's get into previewing these prelims. Under 24 hours from when we're recording this, Hollywood and GWS will bounce at the G. 7.50 p.m. local, 5.50 a.m. Eastern for Americans, 2.50 a.m. Pacific, where we are on Fox Sports 2. This is first versus seventh, and it's a very different atmosphere around the matchup to when they played last. Yeah, that last game, it was kind of like, all right, this is a chance for GWS to either really prove themselves or for them to kind of fall off, and we thought at the time they were going to fall off after that. It was the first time they had really been beaten soundly. That was a 65-point defeat back in round nine, and then they just kind of rolled after that. Yeah, Mason Cox basically ended Matt Flynn's Giants AFL career. It was pretty even in hitouts, but Cox was superior throughout the ground. He got the 10 coaches' votes as part of the first perfect ballots of the season. It was uh, Cox getting 10, Jordan Degoe 8, Nick Dacos 6, Tom Mitchell 4, and Darcy Moore 2. Yeah, Flynn was uh, dropped for Kieran Briggs after that, and I'm looking forward to that matchup. Cox against Briggs, big time. Between what Cox did last time out 
and just the potential for September Mason to rear its head again. Also important to remember that the Giants were without both Toby Green and Sam Taylor in round nine. And yes, Briggs will be in. He's fine from his shoulder situation, or at least he's uh, he's good enough to play. Yeah, Giants unchanged. Xavier O'Halloran's an emergency again. Nick Haynes is as well. Any ideas on where they go? I don't know. I'd be shocked if it wasn't one of those two, though. I think Anglin's one of the others, but yeah, it's it's one of them. O'Halloran can find a tag, so maybe if you want to limit Nick Daycost late, that can be an option. We were talking a lot about the one-on-one defensive matchups for the Giants last time out, so that's why I actually think it's going to lean toward Haynes. You were thinking Taylor gets the main job on Majacek instead of Roving. The one thing that I was really set on was that Harry Himmelberg should be the one going up with Damick's stay. Yeah, or you could go Buckley on Majacek, I guess. Buckley's played really well lately. I would have the confidence in him at least to start on him. You know, if it doesn't work, obviously, then you switch some shit around. We thought Collingwood were going to have a really tough time making their change, but an injury presented itself, and of course, it's the luckless former giant. Yeah, Taylor Adams got hurt in practice last week. This was already known. So it's just Nick Dacos in for Taylor Adams, and it looks like Jack Ginneman is going to be the sub again. Yeah, Collingwood have confirmed their sub very early, many times this year, and this round's no different. It's the fifth time Ginevan will be the sub. He was for the qualifying final as well, and it worked. The big change for the Giants, other than personnel from their last meeting with Collingwood, was how they've gotten much better at scoring from stoppage. Well, it did kind of coincide with Briggs' return, but they really turned it on post-buy. So kind of going from round 16 through the end of the season. Are Collingwood the type of club that can neutralize the Giants' spread? Or do you have concern because of their lack of a real tagger? I think they're good enough all around that they can withstand it. It's going to have to be one of those welcome to Springfield where nobody sucks situations. I think I used that for a title last year. May have actually been during the finals. I don't know, but it's it's a good reference. Who's Flanders here? Great question. I guess whoever gets subbed off will be Flanders. Yeah. Um, the matchup that everyone wants to see out of this one is pretty obviously... Brayden Maynard versus Toby Green. It would be really funny if they just, like, have a friendly handshake before the game. Get back here and kill each other! In reality, Maynard will probably land the first push. I don't know, but I'm just looking forward to, you know, I'm sure opening, you know, right before the opening bounce, they'll do a little pushing and shoving, you know, just like, to borrow one of my favorite quotes ever. Welcome to me, motherfucker! I thought this was going to be an all-new episode of Shoving Buddies. Ooh, no, but that is a good show. If the Giants somehow pull this off, and I think it's they're by far the least likely of the four teams to be playing next week. Even though the line that we see is closer than the one for the second prelim, Collingwood favored by 10.5 at least before the teams went out. If, if they do, I am going to start all sorts of narratives about how Collingwood is actually better without Nick Dacost. Then watch him win the Brownlow. Okay, doesn't mean the team's better with him. I mean, there was a whole talk about him being too selfish when they had those couple losses there before he got hurt. Look, since he's been injured, without him, they're 3-1. and one. You know, you need we guys, not me guys. I'm thinking like the whole there is an I in team thing right now. The, with the little drawing with the I inside the A. Yes, it's in the A-hole. Yes. Who matches up against Nick Dacos is the real question then. Well, I mean, who's, who's your tagger? It used to be Lockie Ashwood. He's had a steadier backline role. They don't have a real tagger either, GWS. So are we just expecting a high-scoring affair where the best players kind of run free? I don't know. I feel like that's the sort of thing that GWS should be favored in, but Collingwood's won a lot of those types of games as well. So, I I mean, Collingwood's won every type of game the last couple of years, right? Right. One way or another, I think this will be higher scoring than their last finals meeting, the prelim in 2019 which was a 56-52 to Giants win at the G. The Giants scored the first six goals of the second half and withstood a late Collingwood charge. They weren't accurate enough. It was actually Adams that missed the last shot. And the Giants couldn't even score half of what they scored at the prelim the next week in the grand final. The first goal curse was alive and well back then. How do you see this game going in a world where GWS wins it? What do they have to do? What sort of pass does this game take if it's one that they win? My check inaccurate. Somebody's able to body up against Nick Dacos, and the lack of a tag just means that Canelio and Kelly can run as wildly as anybody. 
maybe it will require Jack Crisp to have a down game as well, or him to kind of get swallowed up at stoppage. Seems reasonable. How do you see it? I think it's just they once again go hard in clearances and just Sam Taylor goes off. And I think it'll be one of those games where we really start to appreciate Jack Buckley more and they find a way to make Bobby Hill quiet. Yeah, without one of the other giant turned pies in the mix, you have a feeling that Bobby Hill or Will Hoskin Elliott will do something insane, right? I think Hill's the much more likely of the two. As am I. Not just because it's against his former team, but because he's just really fun and exciting. And I also don't think it will have to wait until the fourth quarter or whenever Gideman comes on. I could always see him doing something pretty ridiculous, too. Will Toby Green have to face the Tribunal from this game? Put a percentage on it. Ten. You think he's that measured? Even up against Maynard? Yeah. Impressive. And yeah, it is official now, by the way. It's Uze. Richmond has it themselves. Never knew his Twitter handle. At Ooze21. Unfortunately, I think this means that uh, the Tigers have lost all their Greek and Serbian fans. Because Uze is of Albanian heritage. Those mother bitches over there! These son of my bitches! Please tell me other people are as obsessed with the cursed Balkan comments as we are. Yes, cursed Balkan comments are awesome. Also, if you're not familiar with that last reference, it's Key and Peel. You guys should you guys should get into Key and Peel. I feel like it's one of those things that could make it big internationally, like long after it's done running. I feel like the East-West Bowl and the substitute teacher have to have already gone big internationally, and the fact that Jordan Peele is involved probably means people know it. I would hope so. Well, that would be a nice thing to know, though. How many Australians actually know about Key and Peele? Prelim number two, Saturday Twilight, the Michael Voss Cup, I guess? No, the Mitch Robinson Cup. I mean, it's been that before, but it's going to be that again. Yeah, I think Robinson's the only player to have played 100 for both clubs, but Voss seems more obvious here given he's actually involved. Yeah, but he's on one of the two sides currently. That's the that's what I mean. So that's why I don't like it as much. Okay, whether it's the Michael Voss Cup or the Mitch Robinson Cup, it'll be the first finals meeting between the Lions and Blues since Voss's first year as an AFL head coach when Brisbane had a six-goal comeback spearheaded by two Daniels, Bradshaw and Rich, to beat Carlton by seven in an elimination final. Going back and watching that game, I saw just these great reactions from then-Prime Minister Kevin Rudd with his lion scarf on, going crazy for this comeback. And then sitting next to him, Blues great Mike Fitzpatrick, the chair of the AFL commission and his wife. Just the opposite reactions there were priceless. Ooh, I gotta watch this. Surprised you haven't. But that was really kind of the end of the Lions' great era. It was the year after Lee Matthews had stepped down. Simon Black was best on ground and was nearing the end of his career. 14 years later, Voss is back as a head coach and he's on the other side. What kind of reception do you think he gets? If, I mean, for a game of this magnitude, probably not as big. Or probably not as positive. Yeah. I feel like it's less of a storyline than you'd think. Weird to see a Twilight fixture like this. Is this a time slot we've had all year? 5.15 local? I don't think this exact time, but it is 3.15 a.m. on the East Coast of the United States, 12.15 a.m. Pacific time, so just into Saturday for us, which is great for me because all have been all settled in and at home then. It'll also be 3.15 p.m. in China. Right, because all of China's on the same time zone as Western Australia, among others. Wait, why China? Was that the random country you generated? Yep. Hmm. I just clicked random country generator and it gave me China. Well, just across the border from China, the very small border, it'll then be, what, 11.45 a.m. in Afghanistan? Yeah. Yeah, China shares a border with Afghanistan, and because of all of China being on Beijing time, it's a three and a half hour difference across that tiny border, which is, I believe, the largest in the world. Uh, I mean, maybe largest, definitely one of the weirdest. I mean, not kind of the international date line, obviously, that's kind of a cop out. Yeah. How long is that border? Not very. It is 92 kilometers or 57 miles. Quite small indeed. There's one that a lot of people might not even notice on the map because it's a kind of a weird salient of Afghanistan that sticks out into China. This will be a Fox Sports 1 game. This and the Grand Final will both be on FS1, so a bit greater exposure to American audiences, we hope. Man, I like laughing at all the pores that don't have 
FS2. You, you've talked about this before, the peasants. I like making fun of the poors. Um, one of my friends is a pretty fun one. Speaking of the poors. Little sisters of the poor? Are you friends with Gordon Gee? No. This is, um, you know what he calls like when they have the t-shirt toss at sporting events? I don't think you've ever mentioned this to me. Welfare clothing. That is good. Isn't it? Looking back at when these teams last played in round eight, the Lions caused a lot of Carlton fans to leave Marvel Stadium early when they went on a five goal to nothing run in the third quarter. Zach Bailey had three of those goals and Charlie Cameron two. They each had four for the game. The Blues bombed it into contests a whole lot. Don't expect that again. Well, even though the Lions will be without Jack Payne, which is a pretty big deal in the context of this matchup. Yeah, you seem to really think that's enormous. Well, it means Andrews is taken out of that roving role. Either that or you're going to have to back in Darcy Gardner or Ryan Lester to go up against Charlie Carno. And I'm not a fan of that idea. Charlie Carno only had one goal in that round eight matchup, and it was more when he was against Ryan Lester, one of you wanted the first place. So Payne has been one of the best one-on-one defenders against big targets real key forwards all year and his angle injury from finals week one is keeping him out of this i would say from that alone i might back the blues to cover that 19 and a half point line that i'm currently seeing from american books i do think there is a world where the lions blow them out i think if, if we were to rank like all of the possible blowouts in order it would go pies blowout win then lions then blues then giants right Yes, I feel like as unimaginative as that is, I feel like there's no possibility, though, for the Lions to just win this by an average margin. It's either a nail biter or it's 30 plus. If it's between 10 and 33, I'll say I'll be surprised unless it's a super late goal to push the margin out. Kind of like what Damick stated last year after Jake Lever did his little dance at the semifinal. That's still one of my favorite gifts. So, yes, Gardner in for pain. Straight swap there. Jared Lyons is one of the subs again. Congratulations to Lyons on winning the J.J. Liston trophy as best and fairest for the VFL. I'm not sure, though, if he's the right pick for a sub here, considering the backline concerns without pain. I mean, what would you have gone with? Well, nothing's confirmed yet, so it's up in the air until an hour before bounce, but at this point, I'm wondering if they'll bring in Garrett Joyce for the first time in a while. That seems like an you know, an eh option, like, it's not the worst thing in the world, but... There's no great answer here. Yeah. Lions, Joyce, Darcy Fort, and James Tunstall are the four emergencies. So, big loss there to not have pain in going against Carnot. I think Lions is the best of those choices, realistically. I don't know if there's any great one, but I think it's probably the best way to go about this. I think... Really, just above all else, they're going to be putting a lot onto Ryan Lester's shoulders. And this could be really his last big go-around, considering Tom Duday is in play for the Lions. Yes, he'll be missing a good part of next season, but you'd imagine he'd be back in time for a finals run. And he seems like a kind of guy who can go in and take Lester's spot. Four changes for the Blues. Jordan Boyd comes in for Brody Kemp. That's probably the biggest surprise of them. Yeah. Jack Martin and Harry Mackay coming back in is no surprise. David Cunningham and Matthew Owies come out. Also, Oliver Hollins in. Hollins was the sub last round. Did really well on the wing late. They backed him in. He's into the 22. That center line, I think it's Crips between Akers and Hollins, which I really like. Cunningham, Kemp, Kennedy, and Owies, the four that were dropped, are all of the emergencies. I'm going to guess they're going to go with Kennedy just because he's kind of the most well-rounded. I still think it's ridiculous that Patty Dow is not in that bunch at all. I would probably have him in there rather than one of Kemp or Cunningham. He's more likely to be a saint next year than anything. Dow, that is. Uh, Jordan Boyd for Brody Kemp seems like one of those just kind of like we don't really have a great option type moves. Yeah, I'm really puzzled by this because you're downsizing a bit from Kemp to Boyd. I guess that's really backing in Caleb Marchbank to take one of those taller matchups between Danaher and Hipwood. Yeah, I, I mean, here's my thing. I guess Kemp is such a, like, high-risk, high-reward player at times that you're going with the safer bet here. It's just, again, it just seems unremarkable. But that said, we've seen players that you wouldn't think of as part of, like, a premiership defense. Like, 
if you looked at Jake Kolajashny now and said a year ago he was a key part of a premiership defense, I would have I would have thought you were insane. Same thing with Jed Buse, quite honestly, but those were but those were Buse less so. But those were the two that really rose to the occasion come September last year. I still like the Lions' chances. I just think it's going to be closer than what the line currently is on our end. If it comes down to... The, the line does still seem a bit high. If it comes down to marking inside 50, then I want to say the line still have the advantage. Well, that also seems to imply there isn't going to be like a big disparity in set shot accuracy, which is always a possibility especially when you've got guys like Danaher and Mackay who could either rip off like six straight or just go like one five. Are we going to see that crazy trend continue where it's like the mirror ring of goals and behinds? That would be a really funny thing. I, I think that would be so cool if, you know, if both games, one of them's like 11-8 to 8-11 and the other's 14-7 to 7-14. I was actually going to say 11-8 to 8-11 for this game. That seems a little low scoring though, doesn't it? Uh, we've seen lower scoring finals in general. I don't know. I just can't see this game going like that would be 74 to 59. I don't know. That just seems not that likely. Okay, then what was your other one? 14, 7 to 7, 14? Yeah, I could see. I could see that in either direction. 91. Yeah, 91 feels like more of a line score here, even in the finals. 91 to 56. That seems like I feel like if it's that exact score, I think it's Carlton that wins. I don't know. I feel like just that exact score, it seems like the type of score the Lions would lose by. I also really liked one tweet that I saw in regards to this game from Michael, no last name given. I presume he's related to Brandine, no last name given. He said, if Carlton want to beat Brisbane in a preliminary final this weekend, they should simply wear blue and white horizontal stripes. Uh, do we have anything else to comment on? Main characters. Ooh. Braden Maynard versus Toby Green. I feel like a main character could easily come out of that. They've each been a main character once this year. Which one do you say is more likely to be a main character again? I gotta go with Maynard, but I feel like I'm gonna go with Bobby Hill. It seems like such an easy pick. Going against the former club, we've talked about his potential to just go off in these finals. If there's any game in which it's gonna happen, it's this one. I feel like it's not as likely in the grand final for some reason. Yeah, I feel like grand final maximum like he, he'd max out at i don't know three goals what do you think he's getting five here i'm not saying he will but it seems like something he could totally do and for my main character i'm going to go with eric hipwood i think he could have a performance even better than the semifinal last year at the g even though joe danaher is in the building for this one and not awaiting his daughter's birth because she's got to be just over one now but if the lions win i think hipwood's the reason why in the Ford 50. I don't know if that's going to make it in or if it's going to get edited out, but uh, Brian Harambe has been reaching under my door and playing with the spring doorstop. So I think that's a sign to end this recording and let him come in, yeah? Yeah, I think so. He's on Instagram, a cat named Brian. I'm at BenjaminHK01 on Twitter. I'm at Castle Media. Collectively, we are American Spuddy. I'm going to get to editing this. Bye. Bye.